Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Table Manners. I'm Jessie Ware and I really need a drink. And I'm here with my mum over Zoom. Hi mum. And I've had a drink. <laughs> I've sat and watched the footy. <laughs> stop halfway. Oh yeah, aren't we two nil up? Yeah, it's a bit like the Euros or the World Cup when you watch football at six in the evening rather than normal time. Well, I prefer that than the new Premier League eight o'clock time. I'm not into that. Yeah, it's too late. Well, speaking of footballers, the guest that we've got on tonight... is a footballer. No, got scouted by Arsenal when he was young and his parents didn't let him go. Maybe that was a wise move. Well, instead he just went on to be one of the best actors we've got. Can we say we've got him because he's actually Welsh? No. So Wales have. Is it a bit like Ryan Giggs? We want him so much to be our very own. What do you mean? I'm not I'm not English, I'm European. Are you? Yeah. Well what am I? You're European. Yeah. Okay, cool. So we've got the incredible Michael Sheen. We could be Welsh. Really? Well, our niece, your cousin lives in Wales. Mm, just because we had a chalet in Abbasock in the 80s doesn't mean that we are Welsh. <laughs> well, I'm incredibly excited to speak to Michael. Um, not only is he a fantastic actor that we've all seen in so many brilliant things. You may have seen him recently in ITV's quiz where he played Chris Tarrant with like the most, it was Trumpish fake tan. I didn't realise Chris Tarrant was so orange. But anyway, he's brilliant. Frost Nixon, Twilight. Oh, he was in The Good Fight, my favourite. Oh, was he? Yeah. Oh. He plays the most annoying person in it. The Good Fight gets loads of corker actors. Oh, it was just brilliant. But he played a very annoying person. But he also has played Tony Blair and Richard Nixon. But I wouldn't mind if he didn't do anything tonight, but just did the prologue from Under Miltwood, which he did when he appeared in that, the Welsh production of it. Oh, that was, yeah. Sensational. And most recently I've been watching Staged, which is, I think, the first lockdown drama. Oh, yeah, with David Tennant. It's so good. Um, Curb Your Enthusiasm slash The Trip. It's David Tennant and Michael Sheen playing themselves, trying to get this play up and running in lockdown. There's a Samuel L. Jackson cameo, which is so good. And they're just both really excellent, aren't they? So I've been really enjoying that. But also something close to both our hearts is that we are both UNICEF ambassadors. And I've watched Michael Sheen speak at one of the UNICEF Halloween balls and him to command the whole room. He's been on, I think, many more trips than me, but we have both been to Bangladesh, to Cox's Bazaar, to meet the Rohingyas. And I'd love to hear 
his take on that and to see whether he has any updates about the people that he met but um you know it's a hard time for charities at the moment to be raising money unicef you know would have had soccer aid happening in june and couldn't make it happen and that's one of their huge sources of money much like the marathon can go ahead and that's worrying when there's a pandemic going on and places like cox's bazaar and the refugee camps the biggest refugee camp in the world is struggling to even get clean water so uh, anyway i'm sure we'll talk about this all with michael sheen um michael sheen tuning in from south wales i think i can't wait Michael, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Um, how are you? How's the sleep? Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, the sleep is uh, a bit tricky at the moment. Babies just cut two teeth simultaneously. Oh, teeth are a bugger. Yeah, I know. If only we didn't use them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We could just give everything a nasty suck instead. Oh, God. <laughs> That would be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> so she's a bit, yeah, she's a bit disturbed by oh, that. Oh, so rubbish. Moment. And it's very hot. It's very hot here hot. today as well, particularly. Gosh, yes. Where yeah. are you? Are you in North or South Wales? I'm in South Wales, on the edge of okay. what is known as the Brecon Beacons, Breconshire National Park. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, gorgeous. Is that where you're from? Yeah, so I'm from, uh, so I'm still, at, this is technically Neath Portalbert, and I'm from Portalbert originally. Um, my family is still there, my mum and dad are there. And my uh, my sister's just a bit further up the road with her family. So I'm back in Patalbert, essentially. But I'm just a little bit into the country. I, I When I grew up in Patalbert, I didn't even know there was countryside anywhere near Patalbert. It was just the steelworks <laughs> and, and, and you know, the beach. Um, but there is a bit... Uh, so you get closer to Breckenshire. And so I'm just out there, surrounded by sheep and llamas. There are llamas in the field next door, I noticed oh, today. Oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. They're really odd looking. Oh, wow. Um, are you near Albergaveni by any chance? Albergaveni. Albergaveni. No, no, I'm not near Albergaveni. I mean, nowhere's that far away in Wales, but uh, I'm not near Albergaveni, no. I hear that's really foodie. Like, it's a well, f- a big old foodie t- place. Oh, there's a lot of very foodie places in Wales, yeah. As, if you go out, like, if you're driving across Wales and you go, you know, you get out of the industrial south particularly. I mean, there's some nice restaurants in the industrial south. But once you get out into, like, West Wales and Mid Wales and North Wales, you come across these amazing places. Yeah, it's gorgeous foodie places. And I think you're right. I think Abergavenny is quite foodie. I've heard that. I, I don't know how much you know about this podcast, but we talk a bit about food and a bit about kind of growing up and food memories. Lovely. And But firstly, uh, we're both UNICEF ambassadors. And yes. that I actually I, I met you at a Halloween ball. I just got off um off stage where and that nobody That's had listened right. to me because you don't do an acoustic gig at a, a very um well it's it's worth every penny, but you know, it's a pricey ball and nobody wants to hear an acoustic song. They want to hear like thumping music. But the way that when you went mm. on stage and command the audience with your speech, I was like Oh God, you're you're actually the best, um, and it was really inspiring, and it was oh, a pleasure God, to that... meet you. But yeah, so we are both UNICEF ambassadors. Oh, that night, you're bringing back real <laughs> terrible, like Nam flashbacks. Now, that was the worst gig I've ever had to do because you know nobody wants to 
if you think nobody wants to hear an acoustic song, nobody certainly wants to hear someone come out and talk about the work that UNICEF is doing. You know, people are out for a night out. <laughs> They're, you know, quite well-to-do yeah. people, not used to having to shut up for, for others. Um, and I had to walk out there thinking, no one is going to listen. And I'm about to put my heart out there. Like, I'm talking about my 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 daughter and and seeing children going through terrible things and, and it was just horrendous and I went out and I and I had to muster every single bit of whatever I've got in me that tries to make people listen to me and people did people shut up I couldn't believe it they actually listened I was amazed it was the performance of your life I think it was and you know only those people saw it <laughs> well I saw it and it was amazing <laughs> well how, thank you how, how thank did you. you get involved with UNICEF um, originally it was through uh, Soccer Aid I took part in Soccer Aid as the captain of the rest of the world team for uh, for many years um, I think I started in 2010 I think it was and you know, I was a, I was a huge mm. football fan. I mean, I wanted to play football professionally when I was a kid. Yeah, you got scouted, didn't you? I, I sort of did. Yeah, I was on a family holiday at Pontins on the Isle of Wight when I was twelve, and Tony Adams's dad was also on holiday with a very young Tony Adams. And long story short. I ended up being offered to go and play for the Arsenal youth team. Wow. Did you and Tony have a kickabout? Oh, I skinned him. Skinned him. That is amazing. I think you dodged a bullet. You wouldn't have wanted to play for <laughs> Arsenal, Mike. Did you give him his bad back? <laughs> That's a whole other story, Jesse. No, I, um, <laughs> uh, I, I, the, the chances of ever making it to the first team of a club like that. I mean, a so remote, you know, so... Well, Tony Adams did, and you were better than him. Well, I, no, I, I'm saying that. I was 12, <laughs> and he was he was 15 or 16, and I think he let me run rings around him a little bit. Um, but More modest. Yeah. He was off-season, it's a holiday. <laughs> exactly, yeah, no, yeah. Sure. He just had a big lunch. But I, I didn't go down that route, because my mum and dad said, no, you can't go and live in London, you're only 12. Uh, and we're not moving. Um, and th- that makes them sound like they weren't supportive. They were very supportive, but there was just no way that could happen then. So I didn't go down the football route, but I was still very into football. And and when I got to about, I guess when I got to about 14, 13, 14, I started to get into acting and doing youth theatre and plays. And, and so it kind of switched Then My obsession switched. But early on, I was very into football. So years later, when I'm asked do you want to be the captain of the rest of the world <laughs> and play with people like Zinedine Zidane and, you know, uh, I mean, uh, incredible. At Old Trafford How in front fabulous. of, you know, 80,000 people or whatever. I mean, it was an amazing experience. So I lo- I jumped at it. And to be honest, I, d- I barely noticed UNICEF had anything to do with it, <laughs> to be honest. But then once you're there and you're part of it, the the people from UNICEF come and sort of talk to you a bit about, you know, what the money's going to go towards and all that kind of thing. And I was sort of fascinated by it. And they show you a little, you know, films and things that other ambassadors have done. And so through that, then they asked if I would be interested in um, in getting more involved and maybe going on a on a visit, a trip somewhere. So I started off going to... The first trip I did was to Chad in Africa. And it was... Uh, they were sort of letting me in easy a bit just to see sort of, you yeah. know, it wasn't too oh, distressing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and but even so, that was kind of mind blowing, really, when I went to that. That was that really opened my eyes in all kinds of ways about things. And then I then I went on from there then and, and visited places like um, the Syrian refugee camp in Lebanon. Uh, eventually, I went to the Zatari camp in Jordan as well, the Syrian refugee camps. Um 
I went to Guatemala. And the last time I, I went on a trip was to Bangladesh, to the Katapalong camp at um, in Cox's Bazaar there with all the Rohingya refugees, um, mm. which I think you've been to as well. You've been to that one. Have you? Yeah, so I went in 2017 in December when the Rohingya people had fled from Myanmar and that was in August, the big influx of refugees that entered into Bangladesh. And so I went four months after that right. and it was it was really harrowing and really, I mean, just so upsetting. And they were just kind of make, setting up the camps, even though it was already the biggest refugee camp in the world. Yeah. And has got bigger. Yeah. So when did you go? Well, I was there in 2018 as well, in, in April. So I was there just before the monsoon was about to start in, in around sort of, they thought in about June time, but it's kind of, you know, any time around there. March to, I think, July is sort of um, one period of time. And then uh, I think September to December is another cyclone seasons. But um, the the big fear was that there was, here was this huge camp that had been kind of deforested the hillsides deforested mm. to just build, you know, to put settlements on. And of course, if the rains were to come, if the monsoon rains were to hit hard, then the the flash floods and landslides, you know, was a terrifying prospect with so many people there. I mean, at that point when I was there, I can't, I think there was maybe like 500,000 people or something like that. I mean, there's now 854,000 people, I think, in the camp now. Um, but, you know, it was massive enough at the time. And the thought of, of the destruction that could come from mm. the monsoon was was sort of terrifying. And so uh, so the idea was that I would go, I would see what was happening, and then I would come back and be able to talk about it and try and get support for the for the monsoon season for, for people to sort of mitigate the potential destruction that could come with that. And whilst I was there at the camp, and, I, you know, I'm sure like you, like you said, the, first, the thing that hits you is just the size of it, the scale of mm. it, the amount of people there and knowing that half of the camp are children yeah, and just seeing the conditions, you know, just literally just bits of cardboard and bits of corrugated iron, if you're lucky, and some bamboo and, that, you know, just all piled on. And I remember being up on a slightly raised hill area and seeing the int- pretty much the entire camp around me. And I, I was just, I was reduced to just... You know, I, I couldn't catch my breath. It was it was extraordinary to see the scale of it and to think of what could happen with the monsoon. So, And I remember as I was there, the rain started oh, wow. and this, this just torrential thing just started happening and it was terrifying. You were seeing not only the, the workers there in the camp, but also the, the refugees themselves, volunteers, starting to try and tie things down and do what they could to, to help, you know, and it was, it really was terrifying. And that was just the beginnings of, of a taste of what the monsoon could do. And I, and I was, it was extraordinary that I was there to sort of witness that. You think about that, there's a survival instinct, the fact that they had to flee Myanmar and, you know, the atrocities that they've seen and then monsoon hits. And then you get COVID-19. Um <laughs> And then it's, you know, I I don't know if you've been, I got a call from uh, one of the UNICEF people on the ground and an update about what it's like in Cox's Bazaar with COVID. And they've only got like 43 confirmed cases and four deaths, but it's apparently because they're too scared to go in and get tested because if you were tested positive, you'd be taken into isolation. And some of these mothers can't risk leaving their children on their own. Right. And yeah. and then there's a stigma attached to if you get a positive result. So they're just not getting tested out of fear. Yeah. And you you know what it was like. They were so close to each other. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine there's far more than 43 cases. 
Yeah, I mean, you can't social distance there. No. It's just ridiculous. And, you know, just being able to wash your hands, do things as basic as washing your hands is really hard there mm. as well. And and just to get the information across, like you say, you know, the stigma is there. There's always cultural things that are difficult to kind of cut through. And, of course, the fact that there are so many children there, yeah. on the one hand, you think, oh, well, children aren't suffering from it as much, it seems, so that's good. But the children who are there you know, two of the things that um, affect people in the camps the most are acute respiratory mm. uh, disease and and diarrhea. And so the, and both of those things hit children under five really hard. Mm. So you've got children who should be, you know, not suffering from it as much, but actually so many of them have got underlying conditions that make them even more vulnerable. So the prospect of what could happen there, like you said, at the moment, uh, as far as I know, yes, just only four deaths reported in the camp and, you know, quite low cases. But if it was was to really start run rampant there it's terrifying what could happen growing up in in south wales um what was it like how, how many have you got any siblings um, and what was it like around the dinner table what's a memorable meal from your childhood um so i have one sister who is three years younger than me joanne and um, growing up, the, the, the dinner table was not the most fancy of places. I'll give you an example. Uh, this will tell you a lot. So when I was, uh, I'd already moved to London. I'd been in London for years. Um, I'd had my first daughter, Lily, had been born. My mum and dad came down to London to, to visit. Uh, so this was, what, about... 15, 16 years ago, maybe. And uh, we were living in West London at the time. And we went to a restaurant there. Uh, I think it was like an Ask Pasta place, you know, one of those sort of pasta chain places. And uh, we sat down and there was me and my partner and uh, our little baby and uh, my partner's parents and then my parents and my sister. And uh, my dad looked at the menu and went, Pasta! Like he had never heard of the concept and it was sort of quite a bizarre concept. Pasta, is it? All right, pasta. It's like, what? So that gives you a sense of where I was coming from. When I left Wales and went to drama school in London, uh, well, actually, no, I'd already left drama school and I was living with my girlfriend and she sent me down to the shops to get some potatoes and I came back with a tin of potatoes. Tim potatoes. That is what I thought getting potatoes was. And you thought that was posh, probably. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Proper. Yeah. I, I was treating That's it. That's posh. I was yeah. treating it. So, yeah, so there wasn't the most, I mean, you know, God bless my mum. She was a working mother. She was working every day. She didn't have, you know, huge amounts of time. So what did your parents do? So my dad was uh, worked in personnel. I think these days they call it H, H&R or HR, don't they? HR, yeah. But yeah. in those days it was called personnel. He worked in that. Um, he had come up, he'd done his apprenticeship in the steelworks and all that, but he had had the chance to kind of go into middle management. So that was a big step for our family. And my mum, and, and you know, this says a lot as well, my mum did essentially the same job as my dad in a different company, but she was called a secretary and he was called a personnel manager. Um, so that, you know, that was always quite interesting to, to see how that all played out. But um, yeah, so my mum didn't have massive amounts of time and just, just it wasn't a big kind of cooking 
house to grow up mm. in, to be honest. So, so food wasn't that important? I, I, it wasn't something that I, I didn't come to really appreciate food and, en- and really enjoy food until much later, really, until I was sort of, you know, myself working and, and able to go to restaurants and that kind of stuff. And but what did they think about you wanting to go in, to London? Well, Drama school. this is the thing. I was very, I was very lucky, you see, because I not only did I come from a, a, an area that was very supportive of acting. So, Patalbert, Richard Burton came from Patalbert, Anthony Hopkins came from Patalbert. So there was a real something in the real water. Respect. Okay. Oh yeah, real respect for acting there, you know. Um, so there was that side of it. Then I also, you know, very lucky, come from a very supportive family. So my mum and dad were were really supportive came to see everything I did all school plays and youth theatre and all that kind of stuff and my family were very into amateur operatics you know the amateur operatic society that is a you know a real lifeblood of the country they were like there used to be I'm not sure if there is now but there used to be like six or seven amateur operatic societies just in you know the Neath Patalbert area and so I grew up going to watch my uncles and aunties and people doing, you know, Gilbert and Sullivan operas and Carousel and Brigadoon and things like that. So I grew up on that. So they were very supportive of theatre and acting. So there was a real combination there of coming from an area, a very, you know, tough working class area that you would think wouldn't be that supportive of acting and think it was a bit, you know, arty-farty. But actually, there was a real respect for acting in the area. And then a family who were very supportive. And then the kind of third uh, column of, of, of what supported me, really, was that there was an amazing youth arts kind of infrastructure in the area in our county there was a there was the youth dance company that Catherine Zeta Jones came through then there was the youth theater company that I came through and people like Russell T Davis came through and all amazing people um, and then there was the youth orchestra as well and it was all supported really by a man called Godfrey Evans who was the county advisor in dance and drama he built up this thing all through the education system so it was funded by that and um, and it was an amazing kind of uh, uh, environment for young people you know coming from tough backgrounds in a lot of the, uh, the you know the areas around here and we're getting this incredible you know I didn't realize really until I got to drama school in London how lucky I'd been that I had already had this amazing training <laughs> where I had come from you know and um, so it was extraordinary that uh, to have all that come together and that's really what has given me the path through life that I've had. I, I, I've come more and more over the years to appreciate how much I owe to the people who, who made all that happen. You know, not only my family, but also the people who who put their time and energy and, and real commitment into building that youth arts scene up, which, of course, has all been cut back now. Uh, and it's a lot harder to have that. You know, my path to do what I've done has sort of disappeared in many ways. And that's a big reason why... I'm back here for a start and that I put as much as I possibly can into trying to create those pathways for for young people and to make sure that there's access for opportunity for people that you shouldn't be punished because you come from an area that doesn't have as much money as other areas. You know, it's just not fair, is it? Where do you live? Is this your real home then? Yeah, this is where I live. Is it Los Angeles? No, I lived in Los Angeles for many years because when me and my daughter's mother broke up, my daughter was three and they lived in Los Angeles. They wanted to live there and stayed there. So for me to be with my daughter meant being in in LA so so I I lived there and I wasn't the biggest fan of of it out there to be honest and um it you know I, it was lovely to visit and I enjoyed going there and it always felt like being on holiday but to actually live there was tough and and it wasn't just necessarily about Los Angeles it was about not being here mm. I found that really difficult you know a lot of british people I I'm sure you've come across people just yourself who 
who just love it out there. I mean, people who just can't wait to get away from Britain and just live over there. My sister. Right. My sister lives there. She's right. like, she's an actress and she lives there and she, I can't imagine her ever coming back now. That's right. it. Yeah. And I, I I, find it really hard to get my head around that. I mean, fair, you know, fair play to anyone who, who feels like that. But for me, I'm like, I can't, I, I find it really hard to be away from here, you know, from, from this country and, and, and these, and this people. And it's, you know, it's, it's, my tribe that's where I come from yeah. and I don't like being away from it so um so it was it was difficult but obviously I wanted to be with my daughter and and that was it so are you do, are you setting up and please forgive me if I should know this but are you setting up a kind of a scheme within like Wales for performing arts or are you try, are you just trying to be there on the ground to try and build something up or is it not and I mean it's well it's a lot of things I've, I've sort of work in a lot of different areas now really I made I made a choice a, f- a few years ago which essentially led to me coming back and living here, um, where I decided that I was going to sort of shift the priority in my life, really. And so the acting side of things would now just fund everything else. So the priority for me would be working on, I mean, I, I don't really know what to call it. I, I just say non-acting stuff. I don't really know what to call it because it, all the names that people come up with make my bum go in and out a little bit. I get a bit embarrassed by that. Oh, come on, give us a few well, of them. Well, no, when people talk about activism or community development or or charity work, which is the worst thing, I can't stand that. But um, it's, 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 like, it's, it's like I say, I, I got to a point in my life where I realised I have a real window of opportunity in that at the moment I can pretty much work whenever I want and I get paid well for the work I do and I can choose where and when and, you know, I've got about as much control over my career as it's possible for me to have and I'm not going to have that forever. You know, I've got that now and I'm not going to have it forever and so I have have a a bunch of resources. I have financial resources. I have, um, you know, platform media platform resources um i can i can bring people together into a room that wouldn't normally necessarily want to be in a room together you know i can bring um uh you know groups of people and organizations together to 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 maybe at least be open to the possibility of of working together in a different way so there's all those resources and the one thing that i didn't have a a huge amount of was time (laughs) and you know before because the 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 acting side of my life Mm. and so I decided that I wanted to now give that extra bit the time as well and put all the resources that I had to use and because I'd had a growing awareness of how much I owed to other people and the work that other people had done um, and a big watershed moment for me was in 2011 where I did a project called The Passion here in Patalbert, which um, was for National Theatre Wales. And it was something I worked on for a few years and developed with the community. And it was essentially a one-off performance, just one single performance that lasted nonstop for 72 hours and took place all over the town and had 2,000 local people involved in it, working on it. And it was a real, that was a real change in point in my life through working with the town in that way and and getting to know all the different organizations and and support groups and things that and and really seeing what was going on in in that community in our community that I'd never been aware of growing up you know until someone in very close to you dies you don't even think about the concept of grief counseling <laughs> or you know unless you're a carer unless your mother you know your single parent mother is suffering from depression and has a physical disability of some kind and you're looking after at the age 12 you don't think of what it is to be a carer or you know all of these things and it completely opened my eyes working with these organizations and seeing what they were doing and trying to involve them in the in the performance in some way um, and so since then, 
I stayed connected to to a lot of the work that they were doing. And it just made me have a growing awareness of not only what was going on in that community, but essentially what was going on in every community all around the country, you know, and the work that people were doing and how hard it was for them and how hard it was being made for them by all the cuts that were going on. So I sort of started to have a developing awareness of all that stuff. And I wanted to do what I could. I felt like, well, I've got resources. You know, here I am in this incredibly fortunate position and I come from this community mm-hmm. that I've now had my eyes open to see what's going on there. Um, I can do, I've got something to offer here, something. I mean, not much, you know, but I'll give what I have got to offer. And so I decided that that's what I was going to do. So I was going to change my priority. And whilst I have the opportunity to do all this, to do it, because like I say, that window's not going to be there for you know the rest of my life. Eventually the work won't be quite the same and all the rest of it. And so I'm back here. So, yeah, so I work. So it was a very long-winded way of answering your question, which is no, I do. Amazing. So I work on a lot of different areas. Um, thing, I set up a thing. I founded a thing called the End High Cost Credit Alliance a few years ago, which because I realized how much communities like near me were being exploited by just high cost credit company for people who don't have access to credit in the same way as you know a lot of us do uh you have these companies these payday lenders and doorstop lenders and rent to own businesses that just just really exploit people who don't have much money basically um and so i set up a thing to try and get people to work together to bring an end to that and to stop that and i'm working on things around trying to get local journalism because we don't have a local paper here in Neath Patelbert. So there is no access to accurate information about what's going on. There's no representation of people. There's no holding people to account in power. Um, we get reported on by people in Bristol or if we're lucky, Swansea. And that and that's true of, you know, of a lot of places. And, and I think there's a real connection between that and people feeling engaged in the political process as well and, and feeling like they're, you know, represented and their voice matters in some way. So, you know, I'm working on that as well and um, and a lot of different things. You sound incredibly busy and time probably still is quite <laughs> um, of the essence and you know I mean but I do love that you did this um, BBC it's not a drama it's like a sat what would you call it it's, it's, well, it's definitely a not a drama it's 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 a comedy it's mecking around it's kind of some and I'm so sorry to do this because I hate people when they do it about my music but it, uh, for anybody who hasn't listened to it I and mean, I hope this is a huge compliment to you it's somewhere between Curb and the trip for me and like two right, incredible yeah. bits of, of TV and, and, and but the um, chemistry with you and David Tennant is brilliant and um, oh. and it's great but I want to know I mean I presume you're not as grumpy as that I can see you're not you're, and oh I can be I can be Jesse not grumpy at all not at the moment because it's it's in the evening you should see me at nine o'clock in the morning uh, why but, uh, oh I can get I'm not a good you morning a night person. person I'm very much a night person yes yes and I can get grumpy do you find you go to bed later since you've been in lockdown that you just kind of stay up late and watch rubbish telly and or you probably well with the baby the baby you see dictates oh, a lot the of baby. stuff so it's that's kind of different yeah tiny dictators aren't they yeah are you are you hands on I yes absolutely yeah oh, I love I love it it's it's wonderful. I love I love being a dad again. The cleverest thing I ever did was getting my husband to be able to do a bottle in the night was a game changer. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. basically, he parents them more than me. Um, yeah. But well, um, so that's the thing with in lockdown. You know, originally, so before lockdown happened, I was filming in New York. I was I do a TV series over there, um, which is handy because I can sort of come in and out of it a bit, and and it's a good job. Which and one's that? It's called Prodigal Son. Oh, I know that one, but I'm desperate for the good fight to come back. Oh right, yes. 
Yes. The, well, I was doing the good fight. Is it coming back? Uh, it's yes. It, it's oh, it's back on now at the moment. Yeah, in America. Yeah, so it should be on over here soon. <gasps> Thank God. Are you still in it? No, no. I just did one season of it. Oh well. <laughs> I was over in New York doing because uh, my daughter lives there now. So I was there, sort of spending time with her. And I thought, well, whilst I'm here, I might as well try and get some work. So I ended up doing the good fight for a season. And I wasn't planning on doing anything else. But then this other thing came up, Prodigal Son. And I thought, well, this is quite handy because I I don't have to be in it all the time. I can come in and out. So I can come back home here and I can, you mm. know, still see my daughter when I come, and I can earn a bit of money and it's great. So I just finished filming the first series of that. And we came back to Wales and then within two weeks it was lockdown or something, you know. So I had never, I, I, I wasn't going to be working over this period of time anyway. It was just going to be us here in the house with the baby, you know, just to focus on being a family and being close to my mum and dad mm. as well. And um, so, you know, I haven't had my work disrupted in that way and I, I didn't get anything, you know, that I was going to do cancelled. In fact, I ended up doing an extra series. That's what's bizarre, is that I actually ended up working more than I was going to during lockdown. Was it quite finickety with how to do it? Because I, were you acting in front of each other or was everything kind of almost like a monologue with how you performed it? Oh, no, it was all... Or was it through Zoom? It was like this. We did it like this. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, so yeah, so the thing that happened was that David and I had worked on Good Omens together um, mm. a couple of years ago now, and we had such a lovely time doing that together really got on well and seemed to have good chemistry on screen and so I think we both were sort of hoping that something would come up for us to do together again um, but it's quite rare that we I mean we'd never we'd, we'd been in a film together before but we hadn't acted together and of course we realized that actually we were getting offered the same parts all the time it was you know if he did it that means that I you know I I I didn't get it and vice versa or whatever so there was usually one David or Michael size hole in the project and so one of us would fill it and so we were never really in anything together so when, then when we did Good Omens, we just loved doing it. So then David got in touch with me and said, look, I've been sent this idea and they asked me to ask you if you'd want to do it as well. <laughs> and so we just... So it actually is exactly what yeah. the show is. Yes, exactly. So that's how that's the story of the show as well. Um, and yeah. so uh, except in the show, I'm much less into the idea of doing it, whereas in real life, I, I love the idea of doing it. And so we, d we did the first episode just, you know, for nothing and just as an experiment to see what it would be like, not knowing whether it would work at all. And did then you we write did it. it? Oh, no, no, no. No, I didn't write it. The first episode was written by two writers, Simon... Who uh, Simon Evans, who ended up, who directed it all, and ended up writing the rest of it, and he and he co-wrote the first episode in it as well. as well. Yes, and he plays himself in it as well. Yeah, and so he He's wrote great. it. Yeah, and so we did that first episode, and then we watched it, and we're like, "Oh, this is this is quite good," and we enjoyed doing it. We had a good time doing it because I was a bit wary because of you know we've got a full time job looking after the baby here at the moment. Yeah. Um. So the idea of doing a you know a job from my kitchen was a bit bit worrying but actually it worked out fine and Anna my partner is in it as well playing herself and yeah. David's wife Georgia is in it herself as well and and so it was lovely and you can hear Lyra our baby in the background in a lot of scenes as well. I think there's something really interesting about it being a documentation of this time and I think mm. all the cutaways of whether it's the Tesco aisles being empty I don't know it's it feels so far away that time when actually it was only a few months ago but kind of yeah. I just I really I, I thought it was brilliant do you think you'll ever do it again or do you think it's it would never work again well who knows I mean in a way the reason why it happened and the reason why it could work was because we were in lockdown and yeah. we were doing it over a laptop you know um 
So obviously, once we're not in lockdown conditions, that won't apply anymore. But having said that, because we've set up the format and we've got people used to the idea of me and David acting over a laptop, of course, David and I are very rarely in the same place. So, you know, he might be away. He's filming a thing called uh, Around the World in 80 Days or he was just before lockdown, you'd presumably go back to it, and he'll be all over the world. I'm here or in America or whatever. So there's no reason why we can't continue the that sort of idea that we're talking to each other yeah. because we're friends over a laptop. So it's possible that we could do more if we, you know, if, if the idea behind it, the sort of through line is there, then maybe. I loved it. When you were in LA, did you hmm. miss Welsh food? Did I miss Welsh? Yes. Now, what's that stew called? Is it cowl? Cowl. I love cowl. Yes. Now, so having spoken earlier about, you know, growing up at home and the food there, doesn't mean to say that there weren't meals that I loved that my mum made. So, uh, cowl, family cowl. My grandmother used to make cowl and my mother makes it in the tradition of my grandmother. I love that. That is amazing. My mother makes a fantastic uh, boiled ham uh, peas, potatoes and parsley sauce. That is a big, that was a big Saturday meal for us. I loved that. That would be, you know, that might be the meal that I would want if I was ever, you know, having a last meal or something. Well, we're about to ask you that. All right. Well, that that would be a contender. Yeah. And um, what else? Specific Welsh things. What's the one that you talk about in in stage? You talk about it, the um, the fruitcake. Oh, Barabrith. Barabrith, Jesse. Welsh fruitcake, yeah. You did that, darling. Didn't Luke Evans bring it to us, his mum's one? Yeah, his mum made one for us, like a Ah. Barabrith. Not exactly, it was more like a cake. What about Welsh cakes? Have you had Welsh cakes? Yeah. I don't know if I have. Well, they're sort of, what, how would you describe them? They're like... Um, like Eccles cakes, no? Yes, I suppose, like yeah. round. They're yes, round I suppose. With, and then you have the raisins on them, yeah. it's, you know, pastry, and then with sugar on it. Now, Welsh cakes, if you go to anyone's house, or you know when you get, if you get invited to something in a school or, a, you know, an official visit, maybe with UNICEF or something like that, to a school or something official... There will always be Welsh cakes if you go to one in Wales. So my life is mainly made up of going into rooms and talking to people and being given Welsh cakes. That's essentially 80% of my existence. How's that going for you? Well, I've had to spend a lot of time in lockdown trying to exercise. (laughs) Have you really been doing a lot? I have exercised so much in lockdown. I mean, every day, like for at least an hour every day. All right, maybe that's not that much. No, but still, that's a lot. Doing what? I've got like um, an exercise machine that I can use and I've got weights and stuff that I can use and all that. And I put on weight the last few years, definitely. And I keep sort of going, right, I've got to get back in shape, got to get back in shape. And I'm always sort of, I'd be very lucky. I've been working a lot and there's just never the time to kind of, you know, get into the routine with the gym and all that kind of stuff. So I've definitely got out of shape. So I thought, right, I am going to use I'm going to be positive during this lockdown period and I am going to get in shape and I have been working hard I've I've been cooking all the meals here in lockdown I do uh, everything you know in terms of the food stuff and I've changed my diet and I've had a really healthy diet and the most frustrating thing is I got to weigh myself and I'm like one kilo lighter or something than I was (laughs) but you don't get it do you clothe but do your clothes feel better um, he's wearing joggers and a t-shirt. <laughs> you don't know if he's wearing joggers. He could be wearing very smart trousers. You don't no, bloody I know. I bet he's in his pajama bottom. I have nothing on <laughs> below the waist. <laughs> well, anything for comfort. <laughs> yeah, right? it's very hot, as I said. Um, no, I tell, but I, I feel better though. Definitely, I definitely. Well, that's great. Yes, I definitely feel better. And you know, having a. I mean, our baby was nine months old yesterday. And uh, oh, muscle talk. Yeah, thank you. And uh, and you know you have to be fit because you know it's hard work. 
um, and just physically, it's hard work, you know. Like, and so I've, I've, I, I knew I had to get in in better shape anyway. So, so that's good. So I do feel physically fitter and stronger, and I'm sure everything else will take care of itself eventually. So, what have you been cooking during lockdown? What have I been cooking? Yeah. Well, having spent so much time in America, it's you know you just sort of have takeaways and eat out and all that kind of stuff there mm. so much, and and so I've it's been a long time since I've cooked really, um, and even when I did used to cook, I didn't cook much and I didn't have much of a range. So I this has been a revelation to me in lockdown. I really have started you know getting more and more confident, and I might not have the greatest range of stuff, but I make. I make a lovely um, uh, salad every night, and it's. I've been using turkey trimmings, and couscous, and uh, salad. Uh, I use uh, little pomegranates in the couscous as well. I um, oh, all right, Otelengi. Cook up some mushrooms with a bit of uh, garlic and some pine nuts. Oh man, why didn't anyone tell me about pine nuts earlier? Pine nuts, a game changer, the greatest thing ever. 
Um, I love a corned beef hash in a in a diner. Oh, yeah. So there is a great diner around the corner from where I stay in New York. And there's also a very famous one called Jerry's in Los Angeles, near where I live. So I go there a lot. Um, and there was another one called Izzy's in Santa Monica that I used to spend a lot of time in when I lived down that way. And they're diners I love as well because they're not just about eat in there coffee is my favorite thing in the world so you can have just endless coffee in these places but I would go down there especially when in the early days when I went to LA and I didn't have much to do I used to just go down there to the diner have coffee uh, corned beef hash and then I would stay there all day and I would just read I would read Stephen King novels in Izzy's diner having endless amounts of coffee I would end the day a mess because I'd be terrified after reading Stephen King's book and I'd be I'd have drunk so much Wired coffee up. I was just <laughs> jacked up on on caffeine so I, I was a right mess then but I do love a diner but uh, I was thinking about this earlier I've been very lucky in that um I've been for some extraordinary meals. I was trying to think of like the best meals I've ever had to be able to tell you about. And there's um there's a place called I was trying to think of the name of it. You you've probably heard of it because I think it's supposed to be one of the best restaurants in the world. It's um Blue Hill Farm, Blue Hill Farm at Stone Barn. Is it in San Francisco? No, this is up sort of No, it's outside of New York, isn't that's it? That's it. Yeah. And it's it's My friend went. Oh, it's a restaurant but on a farm. And you have a tasting menu when you go in there. And I, I mean, I've never, I've never tasted anything like it in my life. They at one point brought a tomato, just a tomato. And I, th- and I tasted it and it was the greatest thing I've ever tasted. I mean, the food is so fresh and amazing. Uh, it was incredible. But having said all that, it's still, for me, if we get back to the last, you know, your last dinner, you can't be egg and chips. <laughs> you just can't. Can't beat it. And and do you have condiments with that? Um, I mean, oh, I mean, I like a bit of salt. My dad, mm. growing up watching my dad, my dad would pour the salt on, and the the amount of time he would spend pouring the salt was longer than the amount of time he would spend eating the meal. I mean, that's how much salt my dad was having. <laughs> and I sort of, I've got a bit of that as well, and um, so I do like a bit of salt. So egg, chips, bit of salt. Um, Ideally, maybe a bit of toast on the side to mop the the egg yolk up and um, and maybe a bit of tomato sauce. Not too much tomato sauce, but a little bit of tomato sauce on the chips. So is that your main or is that your starter before you have your parsley and peas? Oh, my God, I don't think I could manage all that. Jesse, he'd be sick. Okay, so so starter main and pudding with a drink of choice. All right, a starter. Place that tomato from Blue Hill. (laughs) Yes, that or the other starter that I've... I've had in the past that I really liked. There's a crispy, what is it? A crispy squid starter with a bit of like sweet chili sauce on it. Mm. Do you know what I'm talking mm. about? Oh yeah. I do love a bit of that. But also I, I tell you what else you can't beat as a starter is crispy white bait. If you give me crispy white bait, if that's on the menu, I'm having mm. it every oh, time. Oh yeah, I love white bait. Every time. Mm. Oh, With a good tartare. Great, isn't oh, it? Oh, I do love that. And if I'm in a sort of a, a French restaurant, I do like a bit of escargot. <gasps> Partly, I do like it because it's. I love garlic and so it's so mm. garlicky having snails and I like the fiddliness of it. You get that little little tiny fork thing that you get it out with and I like seeing how other people react like you just did when I have snails 
It's a faff, and I'm a greedy cow, so it just takes too long. Like, I got prawns yesterday, and I did them on the barbecue, and my children are like gannets for prawns, which blows my mind, because I can't even get them to eat lasagna. So, mm. like, I'm like, you, you fucking, you're watching me take the shells off, suck the head, and you're like, give it to me. My son, who can't, my 15-month-old son is like, eh, eh, eh. But, yeah, for me, it's too much of a... Faff, so that the idea of the escargot. There's just a difference. Yeah, there's a difference between faff and sort of ritual. Mm. Now, I don't like faff. Like, so prawns, I don't like shelling prawns in order to eat them. I can't stand that. But give me little, get like oysters, doing all the stuff with the oysters and putting the different bits on. Oh, I'd like little, that. Yeah. I like that more than the taste of the oyster, yeah. Well, and the snails, having the little fork in the snail. and get, I like all that kind of thing. Jessie, Jessie's just not sophisticated. <laughs> oh, fuck off, Mum. You're the That's one that like, would absolutely never have a snail or an oyster. You say it tastes like snot. I'm not sophisticated. I never said I was sophisticated. Oh, um, so what's your pudding? What's your pudding? Oh, pudding. I mean, I am a pudding person. I'll have anything. I don't really distinguish discriminate between, you know, yeah. <laughs> between high art and low art when it comes to puddings. I'll have anything. I mean, when I was a, when I was a teenager, and I was a very active teenager. You know, I was playing a lot of football, a lot of sport. Even when I was acting, I'd jump around a lot. I mean, I just had a very high metabolic rate, or whatever you call it. I could eat anything. I used to demolish a bag of twelve jam donuts from Tesco's. In one sitting. I mean, I would just go through the lot. I'm so impressed. And it would have no effect on me. I mean, I, well, it would have an effect on me. I'd be running around like a mad ass, uh, for, you know, on a sugar high. But it did, I didn't put weight on. So, of course, that's the problem. As soon as you get to the point in your life where that you can't get away with that anymore, my eating habits didn't change for a while. So I suddenly realised, oh, I've got to exercise more. And I kept doing that. But my left to my own devices, I'll go back to that. I'm trying, I've been trying to have sort of low-fat yoghurt with grapes, blueberries, flaked almonds, and pomegranate seeds, and that kind of thing. And? Well, it's nice, but it doesn't do it. Doesn't do but it. But can I tell you, Michael, don't do low fat. It's all a myth. Oh, really? Get the full flat. Yes. It's far more satisfying. It's got less sugar in it. It will fill you up for longer. Promise me, stop with the low fat. Get all the right. full fat. Greet yogurt. It will fill you up and it will be so much better for you. What about a full tub of Hagen dazs instead? Yeah. <laughs> now I mean, you're do talking. that because yeah. it's delicious. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's the problem. You've got to buy Ben and Jerry's, though, because they've become great oh, yeah. actors. Oh right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, the, for the Black Lives Matter movement, yeah, they got they got arrested, didn't they? Yeah, they got arrested. Funnily, funnily enough, when I was in the, my local supermarket here in Wales, this was ages ago, and it wasn't long after I'd sort of moved back here, and we were going down the and we bought we were buying a, a tub of ice cream, you know, just a like a Hagen Dazs type thing, a small. Of thing. course. And I was standing there about to get it, and a woman came down the aisle. Well, I didn't know; I'd never met her before in my life. And she goes, oh, trust you to be in the ice cream department. I was like, what a bloody cheek. I know, what a cheek. And I laughed, you know, and afterwards I was like, hang on. What do you mean, trust you to be in the ice cream department? Did she know something about you, Michael? People do this. This is what people are like around here. They'll just say stuff like this. She was the one serving you the 12 donuts when you were younger, maybe. See, it's all come back round. You probably remembered. Never go back to where you grew up. Michael, do you have good table manners? Well, I'd like to think I do now. But, you know, when (laughs) when I first went to London... And this isn't really going to make much sense, I suppose, in the light of what I'd said about what food was like when I was growing up. But when I first got to London and went to drama school, people pointed out to me that when I was eating my food, we had like a little canteen at at drama school. 
when I was eating my food, now I'm going to, uh, people aren't going to be able to see what I'm doing, obviously, but you'll be able to see. I used to put my arm around my plate, apparently, as if I was guarding like it. Like protecting it. Yeah, as if, yeah. as if someone was going to come and steal it. And I used to eat my food with my arm around my plate, sort of head down, like a sort of hunted animal, apparently. And when this was pointed out to me, I, I, I couldn't understand it. And then I remembered, oh, it was because my dad used to come and steal my chips. <gasps> Jesse, your children will be doing the same thing. Oh, God, they will. I finish their meals. Are you st- now that you're weaning your child, yeah, yeah. are you kind of doing the finishing off? I mean, you're in pure... Mm, are you past purees no, we're, we're No, no, no. We're only, we're only entering the world of purees at the moment. So my other daughter, so Lily, my daughter, who's, who's now 21, she used to say, and still does say, to, that her impersonation of me eating food is me going, get your own, get your own, <laughs> which I think is also a, a, a consequence of my dad stealing my chips when I was a kid as well. It's like, no, get your own. Like she says, you won't share that. You won't share. <laughs> I said, I'll share. So you're the kind of person when you get a curry... You get your own korma or vindaloo and you don't share yeah. it with anybody else. No, I've got much better at that. But so, on some basic level, I do feel like if everyone is ordering food, you order what you want. You take responsibility for your own choices when you're ordering yeah. food. You don't. I mean, we're not living in a commune, are we? But what if you want the whole menu? I know. I've, I've come to now enjoy the experience of, you know, sharing and have a bit of this and a bit of that. I, I am better at that now. But for a long time, and I can still revert back, drop of a hat, I can be back into arm round my plate. Get your own! <laughs> um, what was in your lunchbox? If, if you had lunchbox or school did you dinners. have um, school dinners? What, what, no, what was I had it? school dinners. What was in there? What Were they good? Oh, okay. What do you remember from school dinners? School dinners, oh, goodness me. Like custard that was more like blancmange. Cake and custard. Yes, cake and custard. Chocolate sponge and thick. I mean, not just thick custard, but like I say, I mean, it was like full-on blancmange. Um, I remember that quite vividly. I remember, well, of course, cowl. They would give us cowl at school now and again. That was my favourite thing. I loved that. That was great. That's what you know, that and my grandmother's cowl was uh, was what got me into all that. Well, I went through comprehensive school. Oh my god, this is amazing thinking about this now. I went through comprehensive school having the same thing for lunch every day because my mum and dad, you know, would give me whatever it was, you know, two pounds fifty or something for lunch every day, mm. <laughs> and I would get a cone of chips from the indoor market at the shopping centre, and a raspberry slush puppy. That was the blue one. That was my lunch every day for five years. For five years. Oh, my God. Yeah. I I mean, it's a wonder I'm alive. (laughs) But it is, though, isn't it? I should have got scurvy or something. Because it's not like like I was getting high cuisine at home. That is amazing. What's your karaoke song? Do you like karaoke? I do. I love karaoke. Me too. Jesse hates oh. it. But do you think that's because you're an actor and so you love? I mean, you're the best at characters, from Chris Tarrant to, you know, you, you, Tony Blair. Like, I mean, you are. Is it? Is it the thrill of being able to acquire that person? Well, I do like that challenge. Yes, I do quite like singing songs, trying to sing like them. Can you sing? Have you got a good voice? I can sing a bit. I, it's all right. It's not great. So, who's your alter ego when you're in karaoke? Well. One of the musicals that I would love to do is the Rocky Horror Show. Oh, so yes. my 
One of the songs I love to do a karaoke is Sweet Transvestite. I love that song. I thought it was going to be the time walk. No, no, that's just oh. a that's a sing along, dance along. Yeah, no, I was no, no, just going to do it for you. Yeah, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> Can you usually find this on the karaoke system? You'd be surprised. Yes, okay. you you find it in pretty much most places. Where I used to live in Los Angeles, when I first lived in Los Angeles, down in Santa Monica, at the very end of my street, there was a karaoke bar. So I used to go there a lot. Even when there was no one there, I would just go in and just have the whole place to myself. Um, but I will still knock out a sweet transvestite if you get my drift, <laughs> if I'm in a karaoke bar. That didn't come out the way I meant it. <laughs> as much as it's a delight to hear your food stories, I feel like we both would love to um, leave this episode telling the listeners a little bit about UNICEF's biggest campaign for children yeah yeah so they've got this appeal going called the save generation uh, save generation covid campaign which is to try and help um the 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 children in in Mm -hmm. uh, refugee camps around the world who are you know in such danger at the moment this is the biggest global crisis for Mm -hmm. children since world war ii and the danger is that you know new research has come out recently that says there is the possibility that an extra six thousand children could die every day um, uh, as coronavirus weakens, you know, national health systems and and disrupts vital services. So uh, this Save Generation mm-hmm. COVID campaign, there is an appeal and a, and a fund that UNICEF have set up in order to try and, you know, save a whole generation of children that are in danger, really. So, um, you know, these are children who have already been weakened by war and disease and hunger and poverty. And, and their survival depends on health care and, you know, life-saving food and, and just basic things like clean water and medical supplies. So um, this this appeal is the largest one uh, ever for children in the 73-year history of UNICEF. So that says, you know, how urgent it is. And uh, and, and hopefully we can give people information to the uh, to where they can go mm. to, to donate because it is just vital that these children, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, after they've gone through so much already are not left to, to bear the brunt of, of the coronavirus. And I think, you know, for all of us, and look, it's been hard for all of us, but, you know, staying at home, this idea that, you know, staying at home and that we've been denied something, some children... And families, vulnerable children and families don't have the option to stay at home. And they're they're more exposed to this disease and more vulnerable. And so, yeah, we would love you guys that listen, all of you buggers that listen for free every week. Um, We love you. But if you could just give a little donation, it would be so, so... um, Huge and make such an impact for this um, campaign. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, isn't it? Because, you know, we both know that people are just hanging on at the moment, you know, in this country. People are just having a really tough time. And so, you know, I say it with the proviso that if you can, then please do give what you can. But, you know, it's with the full awareness that, you know, people are just, you know, hanging on at the moment. So, you know, God bless you if you can. Oh, Michael, it's been so lovely chatting to you. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it's a um, pleasure. It's just such a treat. You're you're amazing and um, you do so much incredible Thank work. And wonderful. we love you. So. The only thing that you didn't do was just do the beginning of Under Milkwood, which I've never quite recovered from when you did that. To begin at the beginning, it is spring, moonless night in the small town, starless and Bible black. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Made my day now. Aww. Michael Sheen, I mean, 
Did Milkwood first, Jess. What a guy. Does so, so much. He's a real philanthropist, isn't he? Yeah, but kind of, I mean, he says he cringes at saying he's an activist. I mean, he's, he may as well basically run the country if we could have him. God, give me Michael Sheen. But do you know what? He's not angry, is he? He's just like enthusiastic and not say, oh, well, they should be doing this, they should be doing that. He just enthuses you. That's what's so clever. Oh, that was just really lovely. And anybody who hasn't watched Stage, it's brilliant. It's on BBC iPlayer. They're so captivating, David Tennant and Michael Sheen. You could just watch him in anything, couldn't you? For more information on Save Generation COVID, visit unicef.org.uk and there will be an option to donate. Whatever you can would be amazing, but we understand if you can't. Thank you so much for listening. This was a goodie and uh, we'll be back next week for more. You can't get rid of us. The music you've heard on Table Manners is by Peter Duffy and Pete Fraser. Table Manners is produced by Alice Williams. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.